Welcome to the Three to Ten Project. Two white, cisgendered males who've been friends for over 25 years, exploring race, gender, and education by talking through the intersection of our experiences with what we're reading, listening to, and thinking about. And most importantly, considering how to show up moving forward. It's a long-term commitment, three to 10 years of anti-racist culture building. I'm Mark. I'm Reed. Just a quick note on the name for this podcast. Three to 10 Project has been borrowed from Resma Menicum. You can learn more about this idea and about Resma at the link shared in the podcast description. Let's get to it. Yep, and that's Mark's footsteps. Turns out he's a bit more coherent when he is running. Okay, good morning, Mark. Good morning. <laughs> Sounds like you're on a you got a busy busy road for your run today. I'm doing a little different route today, and I wouldn't say it's busy, but more than the typical roads. And cars uh, are going a little faster, so it's a little louder. Do, do you have any advice? Like, what's your take? Some people think you shouldn't be running wearing headphones on busy roads. What's your take on runner, runner safety uh, in these situations? <laughs> I, uh, well, I do a couple things. One is, uh, I, you know, I'm, first of all, I'm running against traffic. Um, I, right now I can hear fine because I'm not listening to music. Sometimes when I listen to music, I'll take one headphone out, uh, you know, and then I think I actually, you know, gotten pretty good at like hearing cars from far away, but every once in a while I get surprised by a car coming up right behind me. Sometimes I run in the middle of the road because there's a devil and uh, all of a sudden I'll look back and there's a car right there. So yeah, I don't know. Don't listen to me. Do, do what I say, <laughs> not what I do. Just be safe. Okay, well, if you ever have an accident, at least, you know, while we're talking, at least I'd be aware of it and I could, uh, you know, right, have dude. audio evidence of the whole thing, I guess. Well, um, so what are we talking about today? All right. Well, I had seen this post uh, on this blog site called Black Girl in Maine, which uh, is a, oh, is yeah. a blog, blog site that's been up for a while um, about a black woman that that lives, you know, um, I think in Portland here. And she's been a, a presence. Um, I, I don't, you know, she's on Twitter a lot and I don't follow Twitter. So um but her name is Shay Stewart Boulay, and she's certainly been um, somebody who's who's been outspoken and working uh, towards anti-racist work for a long while. But she just posted something, uh, and the title of the piece was called "Can White Folks Do Better?" And I thought that was interesting. And and I guess I would start with this piece that she wrote here, sort of asking a question, because it it made me think of some of what we're trying to do here. I'm just going to read this 
this paragraph from near the start of her piece. She says, can white folks change? Can we get a critical mass of white folks to deconstruct their own whiteness and work with others to do the same thing? Can white people search themselves fearlessly on a regular basis and gain enough self-awareness to do better without the prodding or direct support of BIPOC folks? Can white folks gain enough self-awareness to understand that their anti-racism work cannot solely be about the betterment of BIPOC folks? Can they see beyond their privilege to see that they too are also trapped by whiteness and they must change that as well? So that last part sort of resonated with me about how we're trying to change ourselves and grow. Like that's some of what this conversation is. And I have some other thoughts too about like, what does it mean for white folks to do better? And what is the change that we're looking for within ourselves? I mean, last, you know, last time we talked, we talked about issues of discomfort, right? And being able to really confront discomfort. Um, so anyway, that's, uh, that's her initial kind of question. And we can kind of get into some of what she, she talks and, and how it connects. But do you have any responses or thoughts to, to that? Yeah. Um, well, a lot. Uh, you know, we're in the midst of, or maybe we're in the beginning still, of what I call kind of justice work with uh, the organization I work for. And um, so a couple of things come up. One is just that we finished, we just finished out at like a six session affinity group um, facilitated by consultants, affinity group um, set of meetings. And it was like maybe eight of us um, with two facilitators who are white. And we had the last session, which was a two hour ish session, really shifted things for us. But here's the kind of gist that you brought up kind of discomfort. And in the earlier sessions, there had been kind of pushback or, yeah, just pushback about like the, the way the sessions were structured. It was like, there was a lot of like, well, that's not working for me. And basically by the end of this, we got really pushed on the idea of like, look, enough of you white people thinking this has got to be comfortable and work for you. Stop focusing on the process or the content or the structure and start focusing on your discomfort. What's going on for you? Part of this is about creating discomfort for you on purpose. You know, like my group wanted to just jump into dialogue and like had an idea, including me, of what we wanted this work to be. And when it wasn't what we wanted, we got frustrated. And we kind of spun that into like, what do you think this type of, you know, people of color run into all the time? That this discomfort with how things are. And they can't just say, oh, I'm not happy with it. Oh, change it. 
So that was a really important and interesting kind of part of our work. The other part um, that goes to discomfort, well, let me pause there for a second because there's at least two other things I want to bring up. What do you think about that so far? That that affinity group, was that, a, so it was the affinity group whiteness? White. Was it, okay, M male yeah. and female uh -huh. and all people working together, yep. colleagues, white colleagues. Yeah. Um, yep. And so that, how did the, the, and the facilitator was, who did the, I understand there was some pushback, like, are, are we doing this right? Can we get right to the work? How did the facilitator, yeah. who, who you had, like someone in there who had thought this, this out, how did that person respond to that? Like, did they engage that? Yeah. They stay, stay with it? They... Yeah. I mean, we had a lot of, we had some, because of my role in the organization, I had some opportunity to dialogue with them over the time of the workshops and really kind of get pushed back myself. Like they were pushing back on me. We also, we have a consultant who's a black woman who's, kind of the overall consultant for this work. And so she was in this, these conversations where we were kind of digesting what was going on with the group. And so, you know, we, we put, we kept pushing. We just kind of like didn't, I guess not we, they didn't give in to any pressure. They just kind of kept like, this is the way it goes. And it's okay for people not to like it and not to want it the way it is. That's kind of the point. So, that, so, if so that, that answers your question. Yeah, it does. And what it makes me think of is another example of, in that story, you needed outside help. Like you couldn't, like, yeah. you got there because, first of all, you had actually reached out to somebody to help or, or cover people. To yeah. But yeah. it took that. And so I keep coming back to this idea of how much can we do ourselves? Like you and I, right? Having these conversations yeah. uh, as opposed to someone's helping us. And I, I to me, yeah. there's a real tension there. Like it has to be all of that because we can't just, we can't constantly wait to be led by others, especially not right. by others of color. At the same time, it's just so hard to make progress on your own. So I guess there has to be a mix of expertise, support others that are challenging us maybe to, to make good progress. I just want to make a quick statement and say, I'm running in Franklin, Massachusetts, and just passed basically the only Black Lives Matter sign in someone's yard that I ever see on this route. And it's always mm. just like, yeah, one house. Mm. Um, so I, I think, Reed, what I'd say with this is, it's a both and. Like, first of all, even in this affinity group, we have homework, we have, we're reading stuff kind of like what you, you and I are doing. We are dialoguing buddy groups um, offline by ourselves from the larger group. You know, so like, I think it's a combination of all these things. I mean, I think maybe we could say in the big picture, 
no one's going to do this alone and you have to find allies and supports. Um, I think maybe that might be the take home message for us. And, and I think other white people can be those supports as well. Doesn't need to be people of color. So I think that's good. Yes. That makes sense. I, I will say, I wanted to share before I forget, like one of the big epiphanies I had in one of the conversations, which is, this was really interesting for me. Now we are approaching this work from kind of a mindfulness lens. Um, so the facilitators we have have a background, one of them in particular, in mindfulness. And so, you know, our group is a bunch of mindfulness practitioners, so it's within the spirit that this story will make sense. The Here's the story. That uh, I get excited, like positively energetic and excited when um, I get a chance to work with people, whether I'm working on myself or setting stuff up for other people, whatever it is, and around anti-racism. Like, it excites me. I feel comfortable in it, in a sense. I feel like it generates, you know, positive energy for me. And so, like, when I would be talking to these consultants, I'd be like, yeah. Like, I, I seem kind of riled up, but in a good way. So, what they got me to think about was, you know, part of what's happening for me when I get all excited is I'm actually pushing away the deeper and more complicated feelings of discomfort. Because to some extent, this work doesn't feel that uncomfortable for me. And I've been thinking about that. Like, well, if it's not that uncomfortable, what does that mean? And kind of thinking, what well, does that mean that um, just like so woke, obviously that's not true, but what, so what is going on? And so this epiphany was at least part of what's going on is a, uh, a pushing down and a hiding from the actual fear and shame or whatever is deep in the pit of my stomach, as opposed to the excitement of doing the work. So, yeah, that's just something that came up. And let me pause there. Then I have one other thing to share as well. Yeah, as an epiphany, <laughs> the, the idea here, I think, is that now you're recognizing that. So if, if that's yeah, true, right. and if that becomes a block or has been a block in the past, a certain self-understanding, you have a deeper sense of self-understanding and now can do something with it. And I think that's yeah. where uh, we keep coming back to really trying to get deep into the, the heart of, of how we respond and how we think about these things. And we're so, we've been so insulated 
that there are, it's peeling the layers of the onion maybe and it just there's a there's a lot there yeah. and, and even once we reckon you know recognition is step one and then really wrestling with how how does that recognition now help me think about my future behavior the way I approach things so right totally that's that sounds like meaningful to me yeah I thought it was important and it was it's new so I have to yeah do that like work and that thinking of how to not just shift automatically into all right let's go this is good this is cool I want to be part of this to wait what's really going on for me what's deeper underneath it um the third thing that article makes me think of and something that I've been thinking about for a while and maybe now coming to view on a few different levels is the importance of anti-racism work for white people. The, we're all trapped in this racist game. White people are not free of it. We are being hurt by it too. And I think that's on a couple different levels. So I have a, a colleague that's in Richmond, Virginia, and he's been talking about this to me for over a year. Just kind of like, white people need to stop pretending like we're doing something to save people of color and recognize that we're, this is about us too, if not us in a big way. Like we are trapped by racism. We are not our, and, and to unpack what exactly that means, I, I'm not as articulate, but I do believe it more and more. On a very pragmatic level, I've just started listening to The Sum of All of Us, I think that's the name of the book, which is making a very pragmatic case for how racism hurts everyone, and especially not especially, but and white people. And really, it's, it's a really well done and thoughtful book. Also, like, so disturbing. Most of it you'll know about, but then you hear it and in more detail. And it just, it's like, oh my gosh. Yeah, that's, and not only is it like it's a history, but like we're basically living through some of the things that are in it right now with the voter suppression stuff that's going on, uh, like in Georgia and in other places. Well, you know, it's funny because I, I, you and I, a lot of times are, are on the same page. And I think there's problems with that. Obviously we've, we've unpacked, like, you know, we're so similar in a lot of ways. So I've got about an hour left in, in the book is actually called the sum of us. Not the sum of the all sum of us. us. Okay. But yeah, I'm almost done. I actually was listening to it on my uh, run yesterday. I didn't listen to it on my run today because my running coach said today was a a no <laughs> podcast run. So um, there you go. Yeah. Good boy. And, and, and that um, her premise, which which links very much to other things that you know, we've been reading and talking about, I think is powerful. Uh, not only that the 
the results of racism impact everyone, but that everything is impacted by racism. So she's doing a nice yeah. job in that book of really talking about, you know, education, healthcare, politics, um, uh, uh, community, um, just community design, and how everything has been linked in. And because it's been linked in, um, and all those things are linked in, obviously everybody's affected by them. And one of the arguments that I think that she makes there that's powerful is that we often think of um, two things that, that, that we think, oh, that this is impacting people of color most significantly. And she repeatedly says, yes, that's true, uh, but that the impact on white people is measurable and significant. And the other thing she's arguing is that there may be a bit of a, a like a limitation on the benefits of, of white supremacy for white people. And we may be nearing the end. Right. You know, so, so, so the hundreds of years of, of really benefiting from uh, white supremacy and racism, we may in many measurable ways be, be running out. And that the people who are most powerful, frankly, white men with lots of money, who we know have an, a hugely overstated uh, influence on, the, on, on, the, on our country, those folks really believe that their power and money will insulate them from stuff. And she's making the argument that about how climate change denial is completely tied up in racism. Like we're not gonna be able to outrun these things because we're all under the same sky regardless of our skin. So, so that was kind of off on the side, but no, I, 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 I did, that's, I've been thinking about that because I was just listening to that yesterday. So. I uh, totally, I, that part of uh, climate I was listening to recently as well, maybe haven't got through the whole thing, but, uh, yeah, it's, I've been getting upset listening to a lot of it, and, yeah, it's hard. That's the book I think I mentioned to you, I think, that I asked my dad to read, mm. and hopefully he will, and he'll come on the podcast to talk about it, because... But I'm wondering, I just am curious to hear from people, white people, that like directly benefited during this kind of time frame that she talks about where, I mean, there's a lot of history, but my fam I can trace my family in it and say, we benefited from that and that and that. And I today directly benefit from those policies. Mm -hmm. Can we pause for one second? Yeah. All right. So um, if it's okay, I want to, uh, did you have something else you wanted to say on that? I, well, first of all, I love, I do love the idea about getting your dad. You, your dad should read the book and we should have him on. Because I've been, you know, there's a whole nother piece of this. Joanna and I talk about it a bit, um, which is about our parents' generation. And they were really, I mean, the, the, the culmination of the civil rights movement and the major laws that got passed in mid and late 60s, like that was right when our parents were basically becoming adults. 
and moving into the world. Yeah. Getting married right. and going to college and you know buying how like starting so you know, this right. huge turning point. Um and and I've been and so and, and it's sometimes I, I am frustrated when I talk to people in my family of that generation who feel like they are very um, aligned with you know I, I don't know if I'd say they, they feel like they're aligned with anti-racism work because that's not even necessarily a word that still has percolated into a lot of the people in my family but they feel like they're not racist and they feel like everybody should be equal you know what 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 are the things I could be doing to engage with them over that so talking with your dad would be really interesting love that What's coming up for me too is not to go into this rabbit hole today, but you know, we've touched on it in the past and probably should come back to it as reparations. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's sort of clear lines of access and financial, just really about money, uh, that I again can trace directly to this moment in time and how it advantages me. And um, yeah, by the way, on a quick aside, we're, this will be something to track a little bit over time. We're gonna hire a couple new people at organization and kind of the sister organization we grew out of has gone through a transition over the past year or so And one of the things they've done to a more like collaborative leadership model is they have worked, they're they're basically now doing collaborative decision-making on salaries for all staff. And um, historical oppression, marginalization is taken into account during the process. So I think over time, we'll probably move to that over the next year in some way. And I'm just kind of curious what that's going to be like as an organization and for me individually to process. Anyway, just something to put a pin in. Yeah, we'll have to come back to that. That's, that's going to be challenging work. What's that? What? Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, you start messing with people's pay, then, then you really get real. There's how we're feeling. That's right. That's right. You know, and, 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 and for me, yeah, like, yeah, it's going to be, uh, um, yeah, I, I, I'm curious about how it's all going to go and, you know, whether we'll do it and what we'll do and how we'll do it. Um, anyway. Yeah, well, if it's okay, I, I want to go back to sort of the um, the piece by uh, by Shay for a second because um, I think it wraps around to some of the early conversations you and I had when we first started this. So she in the in the piece she she talks about a falling out she had with uh, a white woman she was friends with who had made a comment a decade ago, really woke Shay up to the fact that she didn't know the woman the way she thought she did and, and that, the, that, that the woman's views were upsetting to her. So they had had a break. And she talks about kind of right. reconnect, reconnecting, which is what sort of spurred, I think, this piece, because she realized that that breaking point had been 
a turning point for the woman. And she hadn't expected that. And it says, uh, referring to this, this white woman, she went deep into her white self and spent years searching and stepping back. Examining her whiteness became a spiritual process. Um, and yet she will be the first to tell you that she is still a work in process. Um, yeah. and, and then she sort of concludes a bit later, she says, um, in the case of my old buddy, this journey has taken at least a decade and is still ongoing. So when white folks get involved in anti-racism work, they need to understand it's a journey of a lifetime, not a, not a moment. And it just takes me to this sort of, I mean, almost kind of uh, lighthearted idea that we, we first picked up, this three to 10, this comment by Resma Menicum, that the first step in the journey might be to take three to 10 years to be talking and, and, and doing some other steps and practices with other white people. And, and, you know, and that was really compelling to me months ago, like that idea, like, oh, that's step one. And here's an example of, you know, a decade of soul searching that a woman is doing that's leading to um, hopefully the change that her, that her re reunited friend can see and find value. In. So it just speaks to me about the, 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 the continued focus that I guess we have to have on this. If, if change, um, real sort of action where we're gonna be able to take it's meaningful is gonna come. Well, and I think that connects really well to the theme of what we've been talking about, which is like even my story of recognizing my kind of gung-ho energy is a kind of a momentary, I think that falls in the moment category as opposed to the deep change category. And getting more aware, building practices, and maybe different ways of being um, that allow deeper awareness, self-awareness. Here's a quick story around that. Um, that I'm still like learning. I still totally have my finger on. So it'd be interesting over time to hear me talk about it, hopefully in a more articulate way. But so the coach, you know, the consultant who's also coaching me directly, that's a black woman in our organization. I've talked to her a few different times or she's, she's heard me bring up either her directly or in groups, the importance that I believe my role is in like stepping up and stepping in for people of color so they don't need to. Like this idea of like not waiting, not, not uh, like putting it on them to have to defend themselves or having to bring something up or to address what someone else said, like in a lot of spaces, it's just something I've been talking to John about over time that, you know, if white people don't speak up, the people of color either are silent or always have to do the work. And she's kind of pushed back on me. She's like, kind of like enough with that, Mark. Like, stop thinking you need to do this for others. 
you need to do this for you. <laughs> and you need to figure out your stuff. Stop focusing on kind of, she hasn't said this, but kind of like being, I, now I'm putting my own words to it, kind of like being the hero for people of color. And it's been interesting because she's told me about this. She told me once, I did it again. She told me again, I did it again. I did it at least three times in a, I don't know, a month or two. And she was, each time, brought it up. In a, and very, very matter-of-factly, not aggressively, not condescendingly, just like, there it is. Stop doing it. <laughs> so anyway, I don't know if you have any thoughts about that. I have a question. Is the it... Yeah. Are you talking about the motivation here? So it is, is the lesson... I should stand down more or is the lesson when I stand up, I should realize I'm not doing it in a savior model. I'm doing it because it's, it's, I need to do it for me yeah. um, and sort of for the collective, not, Oh, I'm going to help out this black person. Um, I think, yeah, I think less like back up, let someone else step forward. That's what I'm trying to understand. Yeah. I don't even, I don't even know exactly. This is my kind of confusion. I, I think it's a little bit of all of that. And I will bring up another point that all came up in these last month or so. And this was by the white facilitators. Um, something, you know, I, I asked them, like, as we were wrapping up our work together, like, hey, give me some feedback or whatever. And they were, you know, it was nice. They were, of course... You know, good facilitators, they start with a compliment or whatever. But really, the thing that stuck with me, the thing that stuck with me was I have a tendency to signify, like, to bring up stuff that kind of like, I'm not trying to, I don't think it comes from a place of trying to be more woke or better than others. But maybe a place of trying to like, I'm on your side. I'm here. I'm doing the work. I'm I'm on your side. And with and I say things that that bring that I'm, I think consciously or unconsciously I'm doing them to like signify I'm here and I'm on your side. Not so different than like signifying through these yard signs, you know, which. I think we could argue there's a point to them, and then there's like, what are we really sick? What what are we doing as white people with these signs? And uh, I know I just found that was really that's the thing I think I want to spend time in the next month is signify less, like tr not get into my stories that I'm ready to whip out, not to show how woke I am. It's more to I feel like I do them to show like I'm here and I'm aligned and I'm an ally. And she was basically saying, look, if you show up authentically, you're going to show up as an ally. And in fact, when you posture and signify, you almost make it less likely for someone to trust you. So what do you think about that? Well, I'm struggling with the irony of the fact that we're having this conversation 
in the structure of a podcast that we want people to listen to. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and and I, I actually, you know, I, I don't, I, I've been thinking about this a lot, right? What, what is the, jo- Joanna, my wife and I, I joked about it. Well, she's given me a hard time about it. She's like, oh, yes, Reed, the solution is to have two white men talking about stuff and put that out in the world. Like, that's what we need more of that. And um, so I think it, this is something I wrestle with every time we're on this. Like, I, I really talked about the value I find in this. But what does it mean that we then record it? Right, and I send it out to a massive, a massive email of a couple dozen folks. Um, but, but what does that mean? Is that signaling? Is that the Black Lives Matter flag uh, in the front yard? That uh, you know, what's my motivation? And I have to admit yep. that if there are times when I feel like, would it be more authentic if we keep having these conversations? We had the conversations before we started recording. Um, would it yep. be more authentic if we weren't recording And I don't know, because at the same time, I want to believe that there's, uh, first of all, it, it raises the ante for me, I think. And I think uh, there could be value for other people listening to this. And I want to put that into the world if, if it's useful. Um, so I don't know. But to me, the, the, it points right back to this very process we're doing right now. And uh, I, I have some thoughts about this. So, one is here, here's how I think about it. First of all, for this idea of signifying, I think here's an example. I have and can go into conversations with white people, people of color, anybody, and, you know, fairly quickly lead into, oh yeah, I do this podcast with this guy, and blah, 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 and you know, that's signifying, and that's the thing I want to do less of, like, you know what, doing this, but I don't need to broadcast it as a signpost for people, if it comes up, over time, it comes up, but it's not something that needs to be one of the first things that gets brought up, and I have a few things like that that I tend to do that I want to stop doing. So that's number one. I think there's, at least for me. Number two, I don't feel like we're making this for other people. I feel like we're doing it for ourselves. And I feel like the podcast element creates a little structure, actually a lot of structure, and a different level of intentionality and focus, which I think is useful. Not that we couldn't do it, but it just, for me at least, the energy around it is different when, we, when we're taping it, whether anyone hears it or not. The third thing is that I think the people we're sharing it with, like my dad finally listened to one. Like, I could imagine for certain people it might be helpful um, because, you know, most of the people on our list, the short list we have, like know us and, and have some trust with us and so on. And they may be here, our struggles, and 
see themselves in it or question something. So I don't feel like we're doing it for them, but if that's a byproduct, it's great. All right, that's my two cents. Well, you know, one thing you say, I realized that because I re-listen to these, right, and kind of edit them up lightly yeah. in my in my neophyte way, I actually listen to each of these, con- you know, I, I have the conversation, then I listen to it again, and that's super helpful to me, because I catch so much, like, I catch a lot that you say that I missed the first time through. I'm always actually saying, well, ah, I wish I'd heard that better the first time, because that would have pushed me maybe to think in another direction. So, again, the structure actually allows for some deeper self-reflection on my part too. So I, I value it and, and I say, let's, you know, let's keep going for a while. I'm not, I'm not, I don't think we should, I don't want to shut the show down yet. So we're nearing the end here, but I want to bring up another thing. There's i I'm joining this racial equity uh, habit building challenge, this 21 day habit building challenge. I took part a couple of years ago, um, a bunch of people from my work did, and I've been on their mailing list every year. It's an annual event. And I, I haven't done it in the last couple of years, but again, because we're having these conversations, I said to myself, oh, there's another way to get pushed. So this thing is done by Food Solutions New England, and they just put out basically 21 days of prompts. And the 21 comes from that idea of habit forming. You need to do something for 21 yeah. So, um, so it's just another opportunity. You get a daily prompt that you can reflect on and think about. And then there are some opportunities to engage in like weekly online discussions. I'm not sure if that'll work with my schedule, but, but I'll let you know how that's going on future conversations. But back to the some of us, like it's very interesting to me that this is put out by an organization that's focusing on food access. Um, and so, like, you think about food, like, I don't necessarily think about issues of racism, right? But it, as we see, everything is so connected. This organization oh, thinks yeah. that equity habit building is central to their mission of a more just food system. And, and I, I yeah. think that's, that's just compelling. Like, it's not just people that are doing, um, you know, education work or housing access, you know, even food systems are tied up in this. So, so I, I'm going to do the challenge and I'll let, maybe we'll check in on some, there might be some good prompts that come from it that I can bring back to the conversation. Great. Awesome. <laughs> All right. I think we covered a lot today. Um, yeah. It's been, been a good talk. It has, and it sounds like you've been nearly run over about 50,000 times. There it goes again. But, um, <laughs> stick to the side of the road. <laughs> this, is, this is a really safe road, but a lot of cars. It's a big, just for our listeners, it's a big, uh, there's a sidewalk, and there's an edge to the road. So I've been able to be very safe, although there have been a lot of cars. Yeah. All right. Well, stay safe through the rest of the run. Make it home in one piece, please, so we can have another conversation soon. Sounds good. All right. Bye, Mark. Bye.
Thank you for listening to episode 14 of the 3 to 10 Project, Can White Folks Do Better? Recorded March 28th, 2021. Despite all the traffic, Mark did make it home safely, and we're going to try to work on the audio moving forward. And thanks, as always, to Random Chiz for our theme music. <laughs>